a pleasure to be to be up here. I had for a long time hoped to be uh, the first person up here to wear a tie, but Philip ruined that uh, earlier in the year, so I had to go with the jacket as well, so I can have the tie and the jacket. Um, and conveniently, uh, that is a good opening statement because we're going to uh, go to Matthew 18 today, and I'm going to talk about something that I've long thought this church needed to hear, which is how you should dress for church. Just kidding. <laughs> we're actually talking about forgiveness, for, for the, so for those of you who are terrified and upset at my joke, this is a timely sermon. Um, so, Matthew 18, and uh, so I'm told that we are having some issues with the projector lights, and it may come in and out, and it may not always work, um, so don't panic. They will reset it, but just try to listen when, if I'm reading something or it's, the screen shuts off, but uh, um, we are uh, in Matthew 18. We're going to start in verse 15, and we're going to read quite a bit, actually. Um, we're going to read through the end of the chapter, which is about 20 verses. So for those of you who know me and just did the math in your head, and you're like, that's 21 verses, and Brian's talking, um, you may be terrified, but I'm not going to talk about everything. So we will uh, start with uh, verse 15. So uh, normally we will stand and read. So for those of you who are capable, we're going to honor God and his word by standing. Um, unfortunately, the screen did go out. So if you were depending upon the screen, there are Bibles. If you want to go grab them, one right now. They're right behind uh, Adam there and uh, readily available. Um, also, before I forget, uh, if you did not, if you parked in our parking space, our lot, and you did not get validated, please remember to do so on the way out. Gary will have it in the back there. <clears throat> All right. We will pray, uh, read and then pray. Um, starting verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who, whistles to settle, or who wishes to settle accounts with his servant. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of his servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 
and seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and went and reported to their master all that had taken place. When his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are uh, in ourselves unworthy of a relationship with you. We uh, are wicked and such a great capacity that uh, you can barely stand our sight. You can't be in the in your. We can't be in your presence. We are, are people who have wronged you. We are a people who uh, have denied you, have revolted against you. And we were so unworthy of your forgiveness, but you sought to give it to us anyways because of who you are. I pray that... Uh, Lord, you will continue to forgive and to restore us in, uh, to greater uh, relationship with you. That you will continue to make us more holy, more set apart for you. I pray that today you will speak to us uh, about how we can forgive greater in you. How we can be more loving uh, to our friends and family and those around us, our co-workers, uh, in, in you. I pray that your word of forgiveness will remind us the greatness of your love and your mercy for us. And that uh, in that, Lord, that we will be a greater example of it to this world. Um, I am uh, unworthy to be a messenger of your word. But because of what you did on the cross, Lord, uh, you approved me. Um, you made me uh, holy in your sight. You made me capable of being used by you. And I just pray that uh, you'll help me to just be used by you. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you and your spirit will be strong in this place. Your hand will be on us. And you'll be making and molding us into greater vessels for your use. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so there is a, a, a big statement at the end of that. Thankfully, it's actually on the screen. Um, and uh, we're going to kind of work our way backwards in this um, and start with the parable. And then actually next week, Philip will probably be back to talk about um, dealing with uh, those who wrong you uh, personally um, in those uh, 15 through 20 or so uh, that we read earlier. Um, but 
It appears as if uh, 35, so also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive to your brother from your heart. It appears as if that would be teaching us that our acceptance, our forgiveness from God is dependent upon our work of forgiving. Um, it seems pretty, pretty clear-cut statement. If we don't do this, we won't have God's forgiveness. I think that uh, that's a little lost in translation, so to speak. Um, I think we see a clearer picture of what it's trying to say um, in uh, Matthew 25. There's another... I don't, Philip and Jason probably in this long stay of Matthew have mentioned this importance of kings, uh, of a king in Matthew. Basically, all of Matthew is written to show that Jesus is the king, um, along with the rest of the triune Godhead. And so he uses analogies of kings constantly. And he speaks of kings and kingdoms all the time. And you have another king in Matthew 25 um, who is dividing people into two groups, those who will be with the king and those who will not be with the king. And those who are with the king are there because he says, you fed me, you clothed me, you gave me drink, and you were with me when I was sick. And those who were not with the king, he said, you are not with me because you did not feed me, you did not clothe me, you did not give me drink, and you did not spend time with me when I was sick. And the people who were cast away, said, Lord, when did we see you hungry or in need of drink or in need of clothes? Or when did I see you sick? Um, In Matthew 25, 44 through 45, God replies, then also will answer saying, Lord, when did you see, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And did not minister to you, then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Uh, So, what this verse in uh, Matthew 25 and what the verse in uh, Matthew 18 is saying is that when you really come to know me, you will have certain fruits. Things will be evident in your life. If we walk through an orchard and you see an apple on a tree, you go, that's an apple tree. You look across the way and you see an orange on the tree, you see an orange tree. Um, If you go through life and you see someone who is readily to forgive, you can assume that person knows Christ. If you see someone who is readily to uh, come against those who offend him, to not forgive, You have fruit that they don't know Christ. It's a fruit issue. It's not a work issue. Works come out of our faith, and works are fruit of our faith, and therefore we see by the fruit what one's faith is. Um, Tim Keller writes, the gospel-centered way to change one's behavior is to change what you worship. It's not to change behaviors It's to change what you worship. What you worship will result in fruit. If you are someone who knows Christ, who knows his forgiveness, you will be a forgiver. 
That's what Matthew, what, uh, Matthew is saying at the end of uh, chapter 18 there. By your fruit, God knows whether you've been forgiven by him for real, whether you're trusting God with your forgiveness and your restoration and that forgiveness. So to really understand this parable, to really understand forgiveness, uh, or to really understand forgiveness, we're going to have to spend some time looking at the gospel that comes out of this parable. Because to forgive, you have to know the gospel. You have to truly have been forgiven. You have to truly trust God that you are forgiven. Also, Ephesians 4.32 tells us, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we also have to know the gospel to know what forgiveness actually is. We're called to forgive like Christ and God forgave us. So we're going to spend some time in the gospel. Then we're going to go into some application as to what some of our failures in trusting the gospel, how that leads to us not forgiving. Um, So there's three real essential points to godly forgiveness that we're going to take a look at and some other points as well. But the three main points of godly forgiveness are God seeks forgiveness without any action necessary from the offending party. He is ready to forgive before we do anything. Um, The second point is it absorbs the debt. It assumes, it takes upon the debt. Uh, Instead of pushing the debt onto the offender, the one offended takes it. And the last one is it seeks uh, to give or to restore true treasure to the offender. So it's not just a moving on. It's a, I want you to gain. We will take a look at these three uh, as we explore the, uh, the parable. But before we get too much into the gospel, I think we have to understand what we were created for. And you see this uh, from a kingdom perspective. Uh, verse 23 starts off the parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his sermons. Uh, one key point. Compared to not exactly like. Um, so the, not everything that this king does in our parable, that does not mean that Christ or God also does that. It's comparable, not exactly equal to. Um, but both have a kingdom. God created this world. It is his kingdom. His desire in his creation, uh, Philip did a great job of talking about a few weeks back when he talked about the Trinity. Um, within the Trinity is perfect joy, perfect rest, completeness, because you have within that one fundamentally three God, uh, the Trinity is as much fundamentally as one as it is a fundamentally three, uh, all the time, forever and always, within that triune Godhead, you have the three persons, one is loving the other two completely. It's giving his self completely to the other two. And so they know that they're always going to be affirmed by the other two. They're always going to be loved by the other two. They're always going to be served by the other two. The other two are always working for my good. But they are not asking, they're not demanding, they just know, because they are not seeking themselves. They, are, they too, that one that is being loved by the other two, is seeking to give itself to the other two. 
And so you have perfect joy. You have the relationship that we all long for. And God, in his creation, desired to share that with us. He created us to share in his glory, to share in that worship, to share in that adoration of the self-sacrifice of the one dying to serve the other two. And with that, you get joy. Uh, The kingdom in this uh, parable probably was not necessarily seeking to give joy to his servant, but he did give a part of his kingdom to his servant. You'll see as we uh, talk about the greatness of the debt that this was not just like his cook. It wasn't his uh, house servant who was sweeping his floors. This was a major servant. This was someone who was given a part of a kingdom to to, uh, sort of be a mayor or governor of. He was... Uh, keeping order, keeping control, and working to further his king's kingdom. And, of course, there are side benefits to that. Um, But uh, the king did not give him the job solely to give him joy, but to be a governor over his kingdom. But we, too, are given that. God in his desire to see us share in his love, says we're to be a part of how that love is shared. This is our job in God's kingdom. He gives us territory to which we are to die to ourselves in. We are to give ourselves to our family, to our friends, to our coworkers, to whoever we come in contact with. We're to love them as Christ or the Holy Spirit, or the Heavenly Father, love the other two members of the Trinity. We're to give ourselves to whoever God brings us into contact with. We are part of his kingdom, and we are given that territory, and we are given that mission. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, writes this about uh, the Trinity and then his creation. For in self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm, not only of a creation, but of all being. For Jesus gives himself in sacrifice, that not only on Calvary, for when he was crucified, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying province, which he had done at home in glory and gladness. From the foundation of the world, he surrenders begotten deity back to begetting deity in obedience. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross is the same sacrifice that happens for all of eternity within the Trinity. That is the nature of God itself, and it's what he desired for his creation, and it is what he put us here to do. Um, Matthew 14, uh, 14 through, uh, Matthew 14, 24 through 26 reads, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You get life when you give yours up. You get joy when you lay down yours, your pursuit for it. When you stop pursuing it for yourself, and you serve God, and you serve his people, you get great joy. Because God wants to love you the same way each individual person in the Trinity loves the other two. We fail to live in joy when we fail to trust in the Trinity, in the love of the Trinity. Um, 
Lewis writes again, from the highest to the lowest, self exists to be abdicated and by abdication become more truly self, to thereupon be more abdicated, and so on forever. This is not a heavenly law, which we can escape by remaining earthly, nor an earthly law, which we can escape by being saved. What is outside the system of self-giving is not earth, nor nature, nor ordinary life, but simply and solely hell. When you live for yourself, you don't have the joy God intended for you. You don't have the rest God intended for you to find in him. And you don't live in this world in a self-giving way that God wants from you. This is important for us to understand because it tells us something about sin that we have to understand. Um, But we're going to talk about the debt of the servant, and then we'll get into the sin. Verse 24 from Matthew 18 reads, When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This is a really loud debt. Um, Depending on, you know, what commentaries you read and how late they were written, I've seen this figure anywhere from 300 million to 1 billion. Right? This was, this was not the cook. This was not the guy who was sleeping on his floors. This was someone who was in charge of a great treasure of his. And he was given it to expand the territory. He was given it to expand that. And for us, the great treasure is joy found in God. And we are put here in his kingdom to expand that, to give that joy, to spread it to everyone else. Our sin comes about when we subsert God and try to steal his kingdom. And we use his kingdom for my own joy. Spurgeon, uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote, Sin is a deliberate treason against the majesty of God an assault upon his crown, an insult offered to his throne. Sin is not simply an action or a behavior. Sin is when we say to God, no, I will not do your will. I'm going to take your kingdom and use it for my pleasure. Use it for my happiness. Use it for my gain. Actions and behaviors point us to that issue in our life. But the Bible does not list out specific actions and behaviors that are sin to say, if you do this, that is sin and that is all. These actions are for us to look at and go, where am I at in submitting to God? Sin is born out of our non-submission, born out of our non-trust for God and his plan for us to have joy in him. Um, James 2.10 and 11 reads, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you did not commit adultery but you did murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. See, the point is to say that sin is not simply, if I don't do this and I don't do this, I'm not a sinner. Sin is to say, no matter what I do, if I did it for myself, I'm a sinner. Your actions may be good, defined by culture, 
But if you did it purely for your gain, you were sinning. If you didn't do it to serve God, if you didn't do it to serve the kingdom he's put you in, you have sinned. It's easy to look at that figure of 300 million, uh, 300 million to a billion and go, I have no debt anywhere near that. But just stop and ask yourself, how often do I live for myself and how often do I give up, from, give up myself? Your debt adds up quickly if you're anything like me. It becomes a lot closer to that figure. Um, again, we read earlier uh, from that, that Keller quote, the gospel-centered way to change one's behavior is to change what you worship. Our problem is not our behaviors, our actions. Our problem is what we worship. Because you see, as we talked about, we were created to have joy in God. But we've broken ourselves from God by sinning. And so we have this deep longing for the rest and the peace that comes with that joy. And so we begin to worship other things. We begin to put our hope in other things. We begin to pick things in this world that gave me a moment of pleasure, a moment of rest, a moment of happiness, and we worship it. We give our lives to it. We pursue it. All the talents, treasures, and time that you are to submit to God, you give to that thing that you now worship in this world. Sin is not the action. It's what you worship or don't worship. It's what you give your life to or you don't give your life to. If you're living for yourself, you're sinning, and you are adding a great debt before God. Um, Not to mention our sin hurts people. We felt it when other people hurt us. And we tend to try to minimize it when we do it to others. But it hurts people. And people realize when we are giving to them in some way to get something else. We've all spent time with someone because we thought this will get me to the place I want to be with work or this will get me to a relationship I want to have with this other person. And so we spend time, we you know, build a relationship over a short period of time with someone just to get those other things. And you know, they think it's genuine. And they want to continue the relationship. And so they say, here's my number. Here's my email. Call me. Email me. Let's get together. And then you never call them or email them. They realize your true heart, that you were just using them. Sometimes, you know, they don't ask you that, but then they see you some other time and they come up to you. And because there's no gain attached to that time, your time with them there, you basically ignore them. You don't invest in them. And they realize, okay, the last time this person was really into being with me was because they must have been trying to get something else. But the thing is, is that we as people were built to find joy in being loved. And so when we treat people opposite than that, we it's, it hurts, just as it hurts us. We deeply desire to have that love that is displayed in the Trinity in our lives, someone who will always be there for me, who will always uh, love me, no matter what. 
That's our deep desire. And when we see us, when we feel being used for something else, it hurts. When we do that, we add a great debt before God. Our debt is much larger than we like to picture it. And I'm not trying to make you leave here thinking, I'm a terrible person, I'm awful. This is just important to know if you want to really know God, if you want to really be forgiven. And we're going to talk about the joy of the forgiveness in a moment. But it's also, you have to know where you're at with God in order to forgive everyone else who's in the same place. Because you see, sin in the Bible is not always the same. There are some uh, differences given to sin. But there's a couple of things that are always the same. One, every sin has the same effect between you and God. It separates you. Um, Or if you have already been forgiven, it puts a strain on the relationship. Every sin. Um, It has the same effect on your joy. You are pursuing something other than what can give you joy, and therefore you're lacking it. Every sin has that same effect. And it's also born out of the same pursuit. Every big sin, every little sin is born out of this pursuit of filling that joy or that void that was created when I was separated from what I was supposed to have found my joy in, God. However, the Bible does say that different sins affect people differently. And the Bible does say that some, certain sins offend God more than others. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but uh, I'm not saying to you that every sin is the same. Completely, totally. Um, They're the same in the effect it has on your relationship with God. They're the same in the effect it has on your joy, and they're the same in the pursuit of what the goal really was. uh, In our parable, when the king realizes the debt, it comes with a great cost to the man. The cost was um, that his family... His wife, his children, and all his possessions will be taken and sold so the king can recoup some of his uh, assets that he lost. Basically, all that this guy treasured, or could have possibly treasured, he would lose. If he cared about his family, and some of his joy was found in his family, it would be lost. If he cared about his job, about his position in the kingdom, it would be lost. If he cared about his freedom, he would be thrown in jail, and it would be lost. If he cared about how other people looked up to him because of his position, because of his good work, it would be lost. Some of that is restored and, uh, from a worldly perspective when the king forgives. Some of it is restored from a God perspective when the king forgives But it does come with a great cost, sin does. Now, I'm not saying to you that if you sin against God, God is going to take the thing, take your family, take your wife, your husband, your children, and sell them into slavery. This is one of those instances where the God of, or the king of the parable differs from the king God. However, you do lose those things, they do come at a cost. Because as we talked about with uh, that Lewis quote, what is outside the system of self-giving is not earth, 
nor nature, nor ordinary life, but simply and solely hell. And if you end up in hell, all the things that in this earth gave you that brief glimpse of happiness, that brief glimpse of rest, that brief glimpse of peace, and gave you that distraction from the pain of the void that you live with, will be gone. God doesn't send you to hell and punish you further. God sends you from hell and separates you from any of the goodness that you could experience here. That you don't get totally, but you get a little bit of. You lose all of it. It is a great cost. Um, and it doesn't just begin in hell, though. Hell begins here when we deny God. Because all of our relationships, all of the things we pursue here, when we're separated from God, are based upon need. I have this deep void, and I need something to fill it. And so we look at our family, we look at our friends, we look at our coworkers, we look at our job, we look at our hobbies, and hope that those things will fill it. But they were not created to fill that void. And so we've all done it. We've all thought, we've all experienced something that said, this is awesome. I'm going to give myself to it. And then the more we go after it, the less it gives me that uh, ultimate, that gives me that first euphoria when I first experienced it. It gives me that first glimpse of happiness when I first tried it. Um, And so we go back and we need more of it. But still, even if I get more, it gives me less than what I first had. Because it wasn't built. It wasn't created for you to find your joy in. It wasn't created for you to place your hope in. It wasn't created to be your ultimate treasure. It will always let you down. And when it lets you down, you lose it. You're going to go to something else. You're going to pursue something else, and you will lose that. There's a great cost when you don't give yourself to God and you sin. You lose all the treasures that you once saw as a treasure. And that's not to say they're not treasures. It's to say that they're not what should be your ultimate treasure. In verse 26, we see the servant. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. And I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master uh, of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This was a big debt. And for you to forgive it means that you assume, you, you, uh, uh, you take it on yourself. Right? There are certain things that friends do, that family do, that people do, that strangers do, um, that some would consider offense and some others don't. Or if they had taken something greater, you might consider it offense, but because it was so small, you don't. Like, you know, a friend plugs in their iPhone at your house. It costs you money, costs you some electricity. Not enough for you to actually care. Not enough for you to think, okay, I'm losing a real treasure. And so you don't consider it a loss. This king considered this a loss. 
This was a lot more than someone charging their phone at your house. This was $300 million to a $1 billion. If you guys are anything like me, that would hurt because I don't have anywhere near that much money to begin with. Um, so if someone said, now you're on the hook for whatever this person took, I'd be like, well, that's an issue. Um, but even still, this guy, he clearly had more than that, but it was a big chunk of what he had. It was a big part of his kingdom. And so when he forgave, it came at a cost for himself. Um, also, you see, this king's forgiveness was based upon the servants asking for it. Right? The king was ready to sell his family into slavery and to sell his possessions to get some of his kingdom back, get some of his assets back. But when the servant fell to his knees and begged for mercy, the king gave it to him. Uh, Romans 5.8, though, tells us about the God king, and it says, But God showed us his love, for in us, that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's forgiveness is not dependent upon our actions. The king's forgiveness might have been, uh, might have been necessary for him to beg uh, for that forgiveness, but for God, he's seeking to forgive us before we do anything. Godly forgiveness does not require actions from the one who offended. And it assumes a great cost. It absorbs a great cost when you forgive. We absorb a great debt. The beauty of God, though, the God of, uh, of the Bible, the King, of kings, is that forgiveness doesn't end at us absorbing the great cost. God desires to give us the treasure back. God created us to be in a loving and joyful relationship with him. He created good things on this earth for us to see his love in, to experience his joy in, and we take his kingdom and we try to use it for our own pleasure and we get neither the joy of the relationship of being of being in relationship with God nor the joy and the pleasure and the happiness that comes with experiencing the good things of this world in our relationship with God but God sees our debt seeks us to forgive and makes a way he goes to the cross He comes and lives a perfect life, not so he can lord over us his greatness, not so he can say to us, now you must act and live exactly like I did, or I will judge you a second time, but so that he can say, I lived the perfect life you needed to live. I died and paid the debt that came because you failed to do so, so from now on, you are debt-free. And I can give you the joy I wanted for you from the beginning. Forgiveness is seeking to forgive no matter what the other person does, taking and absorbing the cost on yourself, and seeking the joy and the restoration of the one who offended you. 
It is not, I believe the world forgives in basically two manners. The first being, um, I am in a relationship with someone, for whatever reason, um, real uh, communal relationship, uh, erotic uh, pleasure, um, seeking stature, seeking to gain something else of this world, and this person treats me poorly, but because the ultimate gain I can get by being in this relationship is greater than the pain, I will forgive, i.e., I will just pretend that he doesn't really offend me, or he doesn't offend me enough to continue to pursue my ultimate gain of being in this relationship. The second would be, um, where's my notes? I lost my note. Sorry, one second. Oh, yes. Okay, so the second would be, it hurts when we are wronged. We've talked about this. It really hurts sometimes. And sometimes it's easy for us to live in the hurt, but most of us don't want to live there. And so what we do is we say we must forgive in order to get past the hurt. And by what, what we mean by forgive is we must basically move on. Right? I'm not seeking to absorb the cost of what this person did to me, the debt they created. I'm not seeking their joy. I'm seeking my own joy. I'm seeking to just move on, to no longer live in the pain. Neither of those is real biblical forgiveness. Godly forgiveness is not dependent upon what the other person does. It absorbs the cost, the debt of what the person accumulated, and it seeks to restore joy and peace and rest in the person who offended me. Um, but also, we talked about those relationships we have here on earth and how sin can ruin them and cause us to lose them. And then how in heaven, all the things that you ever worshipped here apart from God, all the things you used to find your joy here apart from God will be lost to you in heaven. You'll get the most joy you could ever think you could ever experience. All the relationships here that were broken because of us offending each other for living for ourselves, for using people for our personal gain, will be restored completely. We will all be complete servants of everyone else. Um, For me, some of you know my story. Uh, I love cities. I moved to New York City to go to school, and I hoped to have lived there or some other major city the rest of my life and really serve God and to live for God there. And some things happened with my family health-wise and just poor decision-wise, and God, I felt, was leading me to come back here and serve them. And so I fought them for a year and finally came back. And I don't necessarily look to my family to gain anything from them, but I see them as them taking something from me. Um, Because of how they've behaved, because of how they act, God has brought me back here and taken me from what I love. Because I've made living in New York and being a famous um, person who God used to move his kingdom in in a mighty way, Something that I need, not something that I wanted God to use me in. 
not simply as a way for me to serve God. I needed to live there. I needed to be successful. And I needed to do it on a grand stage, which is part of why I loved New York. doesn't mean be living in New York is wrong. Um, and someday, hopefully, God brings me back there. But hopefully, he does it after he corrects uh, moving those needs to simply as a way I can serve God. Um, but because of what I needed here, because of what I put my hope in here, my relationship with my family is very strained. I'm very short with them at times. I can be very angry at them at times. Um, but someday, I'm going to serve them perfectly. Someday, because of God and his forgiveness and God and his mercy, he's going to move me from a place of needing anything and being complete in my relationship with him so I can give freely to my family, to my friends, to you all, and to his kingdom. But I'm also going to know that's true of everybody else. What joy. Heaven is going to be so great. And listen, I don't know if we're going to play music in heaven. I don't know if we're going to play baseball in heaven. I don't know if we're going to have uh, sex in heaven. I don't know if we're going to have great food in heaven. But I do know the thing you deeply want in doing all those activities, you will have. And I do know if those activities do exist in heaven, you're going to do them in the most perfect way and get more pleasure than you ever thought imaginable. Heaven is so great. That's what God wants in his forgiveness for us. That's what we're supposed to want in our forgiveness for others. But it's also true. Just like uh, we can live in hell here, and we can see our relationships, and we can see the things we place our hope in deteriorate and ultimately destroyed, we can see changes in our relationships here. We can have better relationships here. We can experience the things that I just talked about, like that if we have them in hell, we'll experience perfectly in heaven. We'll experience them greater here if we're doing it in servitude of God and not in pursuit of my own personal joy. That's what God wants for us. God is not a God who looks down upon us and goes, let me hang a carrot of joy in front of them. Just enough so they're they're left longing for the rest of eternity. God is a joy. God is a God who wants us to have joy, who gave us great things for us to love and experience and appreciate as long as we do it in servitude of Him. Let me just briefly go over a couple of key points that we need to understand of how we fail to love God and to trust His gospel and how that affects our ability to forgive. Some, uh, we misunderstand sin. Sin, again, is not good behavior or good actions. Sin is submitting to God and giving your life to Him. When we see sin as just good behaviors and actions, we easily judge. And we can assume when they happen to us that it was about us. But sin is not about us. Sin is an attack on God's kingdom. Sin is trying to absurd God and to use His kingdom for my personal gain. It's about that person's relationship with God, not you. We are not to take sin personal. Um, John Stott, in his great book, The King's Cross, or the, the Cross of Christ, I'm sorry, uses the analogy of a car accident. 
If you're sitting at a traffic light and someone rear-ends you, you don't get out of your car and go, why are you attacking me? It was an accident. You just happened to be in the wrong place. Sin is not an accident, but you did just happen to be in the wrong place. But not really, because God wants, you to, wants to use you. But sin is just when you are in a place where someone else is rebelling against God. It's not about you. Sin is not just behaviors and actions. We are talking about Spurgeon writes, as uh, salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there that, and so abundantly there that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. The point of the great debt was not to say, you have to work really hard to pay this off. The point of the great debt is to say, you can't. Tim Keller writes, what this means is Jesus has deliberately put a sum there that was so big. Don't forget, this is a parable. He made this up. This isn't any particular historical character. He puts the, an amount there that even if this was an emperor of Rome, to lose this kind of amount of money could bring his very kingdom into jeopardy. His ability to pay his army and so forth, it could bring his very kingdom into jeopardy. Sin is about one's relationship with God, and we are so permeated by it. But when we see sin for what it is, my rebellion against God, and we see how God seeks to restore it, no matter what I did, he had took the cost completely on himself, and he sought to restore the joy I was created to live in. We begin to forgive like that. Because it wasn't about my good behavior versus someone else's bad behavior. It was about my good behaviors were done for me, and therefore they were sin. And so whether that sin results in a behavior that culture deems good or bad, we're all in the same place with God. We're all lacking the same joy. Our desire becomes to be an agent of joy for God. The car accident analogy, if you take it one step further, imagine your whole life, you've dedicated yourself to becoming an EMT. Your whole life is dedicated on being there to help the injured. Sinners are injured. When I see an injured person, no matter if they're injured in the accident that hurts my car, my whole life is dedicated to serving the injured. I get out of my car and I serve that person. If your whole life is changed by the gospel to the point where you desire to hurt the injured, when you get hit, it hurts. I'm not going to say it doesn't hurt. But your desire is not to live in your hurt. Your desire is to heal the hurt in the other person. Um, not trusting God with your complete restoration, seeking your own self-justification and worth and goodness. God lived perfectly and died so that he, we do not have to be judged by our holiness, by our worthiness of being in a relationship with God. And sometimes we live in this self-justification mode. I have to do this in order to be good enough. How do we define what is good? I celebrate the moral failings of everyone else. I'm good because you're bad. My behavior is good because you behave poorly. We fail to forgive because we seek to make ourselves worthy before God instead of trusting God made us worthy by covering us in his blood on the cross. 
Because if we don't trust God is making us holy and making us worthy, we have to judge ourselves by everyone else. And we have to celebrate everyone else's moral failings. Spurgeon writes, If you are to go to Christ, do not put on good doings and feelings, or you will get nothing. Go in your sins. They are your lively. Your ruin is your argument for mercy. Your poverty is your plea for heavenly alms. Your need is the motive for heavenly goodness. Go as you are and let your miseries plead for you. You can't justify yourself before God. You have to trust that he is justifying you in his work on the cross. And when you trust that, you are able to see the miseries of others. And you, like Christ, go into that misery. You absorb the cost. You live in the misery of those who hurt you so that you can be used by God to pull them out of their misery, to point them to the joy found in relationship with him. Just as Christ got in our miseries, we get in theirs. We don't get angry at those who hurt us. That doesn't mean we don't seek justice. There's a difference between judging one's worth to be restored, to be loved, to be pursued and given joy to, and saying, okay, you harm this person, you need to take care of that debt. We should seek justice in the world, but just because someone accumulated a debt doesn't mean we give up on them as a person. It doesn't mean we end our relationship with them. Sometimes we might be in a relationship where boundaries are necessary. That's fine too. But within the boundaries that are necessary, you must seek to forgive. When I don't trust God is giving himself for me, I fail to forgive sometimes. Because when I'm built to be in relationship with God, I'm built to rest in someone loving me so completely, I don't need anything else. And so sometimes we will fail to forgive because we need to go to my friends and say, so-and-so did this to me and it hurts because we know our friends will respond by being around me, by affirming me, by loving me, by comforting me. You have that in God. You don't need it here. Forgive and seek to love and affirm and comfort the one who hurts you. Um, lastly, I'm just going to close with Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Um, well, actually, one last point. When you miss sight of what your ultimate need is, you place it in things of this world. And so when you lose that thing you need, it hurts more than it should. I'm not saying it shouldn't hurt at all. I'm saying that there should be joy and peace and rest in the midst of the hurt. But when you've lost your ultimate need, your ultimate hope, you cannot, it's too difficult to forgive. It's too great a debt. But when the debt is smaller because it wasn't your ultimate need, you have that met in Christ, it's easier to forgive. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Rest in the truth of the gospel and forgive and love 
and be a fragrance to this world. There are people who are longing for somebody to forgive them, for someone to see them as worthy for nothing other than they are. They're living in guilt. They're living in pain of the times they have not given themselves to God. And they need to be loved. Be that fragrance. Be that offering of fragrance that leads them to God. Let's pray. Um, Are you guys doing a song or... Okay, you guys can come up now. Um, Father, we, uh, we thank you for your love. We thank you that your forgiveness uh, was not dependent upon me, and that you absorbed my debt completely. So I'm free to just love you, to live in your joy the way you intended me to. And I just pray that as I rest and I live and I find peace in your joy, that you'll make me a greater forgiver. May you help me to love and forgive in this world the way you intended. And may you as a church, may you challenge us as a church in that way so that we become known as a place where people can be accepted, loved, and forgiven. May you challenge us to uh, be a vessel in that way, a way that leads many people to you and your joy. We ask this in your name. Amen.